a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that, what, that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were there and saw where he was laid. Let's just pray. Oh, Father, we uh, do come to you, the, to your throne of grace, through the beautiful provision of, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Our, our Savior said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, take heart, I have overcome the world. And we know, Father, that Yes, in this world we will have tribulation and we walk through holding tight to you, uh, expecting your good work. We pray for uh, Mrs. Yoder, who's lost her husband so tragically, Judy's friend. Pray for your grace to pour in and comfort and encourage and work through the, the funeral service that it would be a time of blessing, comfort, and encouragement. Uh, we do lift up um, our... Dear friends, the Munsons, we think of Rita and John and the babies. Uh, Lord, strengthen Rita. Please, we ask for healing for Rita, a full-on, complete healing, we ask. And we also think of the Swans, whose uh, little boy, their oldest, uh, diagnosed with this cancer. We pray for wonderful recovery. We pray for healing and strength and Thank you for John and Jenny's great testimony of trust in you through these times of trial. Uh, we think of Masis, whose friend, a young sailor, just, just died in his sleep with a family, a little, little boy. What a tra tragedy, what a difficulty, what a trial. We pray that his wife will find strength in you and be encouraged to trust in you completely. Um, we uh, want to lift up our dear Linda Kogel and her family lost their loved one, her sister-in-law. Just encourage her brother and comfort and strengthen him, O oh Lord. So we lift all of these things to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. We think of our family who are traveling. We know a significant number of our folks today are off traveling. We encourage and bless them. Uh, wherever they are, and may they find time to worship you and join us in spirit through Jesus. Amen. So yes, we are moving through Mark, and thanks, Carolyn, for reading the Holy Scripture for us today. So turn in your Bible then to Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. We meet a man today. Google Arimathea, and of course, the only connection for this strange word, Arimathea, A-R-I, and then math, and then E-A, Arimathea, the only connection is a guy named Joseph. 
Uh, we don't know his last name. They didn't have last names, I guess, back then. But we know he was from Arimathea. Well, where is Arimathea? Actually, no one knows. Uh, it's one of those little mysteries, not much evidence for it. It's a little tiny town. My wife and I just got back from uh, Alabama. We actually own a home in Alabama, my mom's old home. Nothing to be proud of. <laughs> Sweet home, Alabama. I'm not from Alabama. I was born in California. But anyway, all I'm saying is you drive. Alabama, I, I think it's fair to say there, there, there are no huge wilderness areas. Everywhere you go, there's little towns, little towns, little towns all over uh, Alabama. Every, almost everyone has a First Baptist Church, too, by the way. <laughs> Uh, interesting place, very interesting. But there's so many little tiny towns. And if you say, I'm from one of those little towns, no one would really know, you know. It just, it just erased from human memory, Arimathea. But Joseph of Arimathea was born for such a time as this. He was in a unique position to do something Wonderful, a huge act of courage and love, a huge uh, ability because of his personal, he, he didn't, he was from Arimathea. <laughs> he had come a long way. Uh, he was a very rich, the Bible says he's rich, the Bible says he's influential, respected in the council, this is the Sanhedrin well-known man. He's so wealthy that in his middle age, age, let's postulate, you know, I don't know how old he is, but he's, he's purchased a, a, a location east of Jerusalem and, and paid the professionals to uh, chip through solid rock to make a brand new tomb for himself. This, if you're a Jew, even today, if you're a believing Jew, the place you want to be buried is east of Jerusalem. It's the prime location. Also on our journeys, by the way, last Sabbath, not, not yesterday, but the Sabbath before, we were driving through Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York. And uh, that's a cool place to be on the Sabbath. There's Jewish folks walking all of, walking on the Sabbath, going to or from the synagogue that day. Brooklyn has a high degree of Jewish believers. And I want to tell you, any of those people who are anywhere near Bible-loving people, they would, they would, excuse the pun, they would die <laughs> to be buried east of Jerusalem. You've got to understand how significant this is. This Joseph, uniquely gifted to do something that puts Arimathea back on the map. Google it and you find out it exists. <laughs> of course, the, the skeptics, the wonderful skeptics, Google it and you'll also find out a very prominent skeptic that I never actually heard of uh, says, well, Obviously, we have no evidence for Arimathea, so it doesn't exist. It's a myth. It's a story. It's like, 
<laughs> what are you talking about? So this is a silly point of view. Um, but so Joseph was an amazing man. And so that's why I'm saying stand on the rock, dare to be a minority. Joseph was a minority. Let's look through this text. And what I want to do is uh, I want to start in the middle of our, our paragraph and then bring in the, the, the top and the bottom uh, together as we close. Uh, I'm going to bring you know, all of the hay to feed all the cows. <laughs> no, no, it's a terrible analogy. There's no cows in the room. So. It, was, it was a joke John started with before any of you were here. So. <laughs> um, no, 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 seriously. Let's, I want to look at the middle. because that, that, in, in the middle, we find uh, this verse, these two verses or so. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. So pause there for a second. See, crucifixion was in no way intended to be anything but a cruel and unusual form of execution. It was, it was intended to be cruel. It was intended to be slow. And literally, I don't want to be gross here, but literally, people would sometimes hang on the cross dying for six, seven days. The average was two to three days. Um, and then, you know, sometimes they'd leave them up there to decay and allow birds to eat them and things. It's a horrendous image, but believe me, Rome was brutal. My kids went to the Oakland Coliseum last night. <laughs> and Charlotte and I got to visit the Coliseum earlier this year. And it, you know, for some reason in our naivety, we thought, the Coliseum was just sort of built for sports and stuff and, you know, family fun. And then, like, later on, it was perverted. No. From the very beginning, the first 100 days of the Coliseum in Rome, there were, I think they said it was something like six to 9,000 human beings were killed in the first 100 days of the Coliseum. So Rome is brutal. And so Pilate is, is surprised that, that this is uh, true, that Jesus is dead already. Uh, so I, I say this, he it was dead. How was he dead? Look at John chapter 10 with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus was not killed. They did not take his life. He gave his life for us. Christ died purposefully. And in his time, this is a beautiful text of scripture. I encourage you to, if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one in the pew in front of you, open it up. These are the type of things we should meditate, feed our souls on this feast of holy writ. John 10, 7, I want to read a little bit here. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired, a hired hand, and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, let's pause. So much beautiful text. Just think about just that phrase I just read. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me. How well does the Father know the Son? You can't imagine knowing somebody better. God is 100% intimate. Uh, Charlotte and I are blessed. We're in our 40th year of marriage. And, and yet we still look at each other and say, who are you? <laughs> I, we know, you know, I, you know, in your relationship, you have things like, you're, we're still having this struggle? You know, for 43 years, I dated her three years prior to marriage. And I'm still thinking, how come we, you know, we, by then you think you'd figure everything out, right? <laughs> but we don't even know ourselves, let alone do we know another individual. But my point is this, Jesus said, as the Father knows the Son, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, there's, there's 100% knowledge of each other, because they are one and three. In that way, Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus doesn't wander around thinking, who are my sheep? I, I wonder which, which of these individuals might make a magical choice to become my sheep. Now, he knows who his sheep are. There's a certainty about who they are. And they know him as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus died for his sheep, those whom he knew. There's, there's no uh, guesswork here. There's no you know, possibility of may, maybe I'm saving somebody. He knows whom he is saving. Verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. By, by the way, that's, that's the Gentiles. That's you and I. You know, here we're at, we are in Monterey, California, 2019, uh, and we are still believers in Jesus, and our hearts swell when we hear the word of God. We, are, we know him. He knows us. And we are that other uh, group of sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And here's the verse. No one takes it from me. 
Pilate goes, how is he dead? We, this is extremely rare. After six hours of crucifixion, he died? Well, we know from Scripture, he gave up his life. He said, it is finished. I've paid the penalty for the sin. I've done what I came to do. I've suffered enough humiliation. Uh, extreme, extreme humiliation. I lay down that I may take it up again. And part of his death is included in his, the resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See, Jesus is not your average human being. Uh, human beings, we may think we have authority to lay down our lives, but we, and by the way, that's not always true either. You know, a lot of people think they're taking their lives, and they end up not taking their lives, surviving uh, a suicide attempt. I've counseled many of such folks at, at the hospital in my day. But we certainly don't have the ability to take it up again. You know, you go, go, go to a funeral, and you think that corpse in there is thinking, well, okay, I think I'll go ahead and rise in a few more minutes. <laughs> I'm, you know, right? It's absurd. Jesus is truly God and truly man. That, that, that's what makes him 100% of our Savior, the Messiah. Um, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the center of our text is that Jesus dies for a purpose. The, the center statement of our faith is, let's, let's turn to it. We have plenty of time. 1 Corinthians, this should be almost very familiar with you uh, by now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's the main topic of 1 Corinthians 15? The resurrection, absolutely. And also, right at the very beginning, it defines the center. What is the center of Christianity? You know, the center is not be kind, be nice, and do good work. That's not the center. The center is this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That, that's the item of first importance. There's so much packed into that box. See, it implies our need. We need Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to, to pay for our sin, our sinfulness, our, 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 our original nature of sin, and our active sin, our omission and our commission. All of this needs payment. It's, it's a moral debt. And Jesus Christ died for our sins. This is the core of the Christian faith. Uh, 
And, and that's what we see in the middle of our text. Jesus was dead. He was a corpse. You see that word in the text? That just jumped out at me. Uh, the corpse. Verse 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead. Just pause there for a second. This is Pilate. He calls in the centurion. That's an officer who is over a hundred men. Fairly high level officer. Been trained. He has lots of experience. He's a career. He took, you know, he has a master's degree from Naval Postgraduate School. <laughs> so there's, you know, maybe he has a PhD. <laughs> I mean, he's very high level, highly trusted, knows what he's doing. Pilate says, you come in here and you tell me, is that man dead? Do you think the guy's going to, you know, haphazardly? <laughs> like, well, yeah, I think so. Maybe, you know, what, what, what the heck? Why do you care? Leave me alone. No, no, this is the highest degree of certainty. He's going to go out and they're going to jam a spear into his side to know that he's dead. And the guy comes back. Yes, he is dead. He learned from the centurion that he was dead. Again, you know this, right? If the centurion screws up, you know, you can't take the Washington, D.C. excuse of, well, mistakes were made. No, no, nobody's really responsible for this bad report, Pilate. Uh, no, he will pay with his life, most likely, if he's wrong. If Jesus has actually just swooned or he fainted or, uh, you know, some other option. So this is, this is high degree of reality. Jesus is dead. He was dead. And I get, I'm getting to the part... He granted the corpse to Joseph. Jesus is a corpse, a dead body. And then, then the text says, I summed it up there, Joseph took him down, wrapped him, and laid him in the tomb. He, has, he gets a shroud of linen. He bought it at a place called Turin's Linens and Things. <laughs> I thought that was a funny little joke. The whole shroud of Turin thing, it's, it's a myth. It, you know, it, 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 most likely it was made in the Middle Ages around 1300. Uh, but, he, but he did have a, a shroud, a piece of cloth that uh, he was wrapped up in, and it was made of linen, not, not, not cheap, uh, a very nice piece of linen. John tells us that Nicodemus came in and was helping him with this, and they brought in 75 pounds of spices, you know, 70, you know, when you go to Home Depot, you can buy a bag of cement. In fact, you can all do this on your way home just to you know, get a feel for it. Uh, there's two sizes. There's 60 pound and there's 80 pound, right? So this is bigger than the 60 and slightly smaller than the 80. 80 is huge. You know, for the average person carrying an 80 pound bag, you know, two and a half miles, <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> Really incredibly hard. And, and they, they wrap him. They're pouring. I don't know how this worked, but they're in a hurry uh, before the Sabbath comes. And they're pouring these uh, spices on there, this 80 pound, the 75 pounds, wrapping him in the linen. My, my point is this. Jesus' body is sort of getting worked over here. They probably washed it very carefully first, of course. Um, 
there's no way he swooned. <laughs> you know, they're working with this body all of this time, doing all of this manipulation and then hefting him into the, the tomb itself. Uh, Jesus was dead. That's the core of this text. That's, that's sort of the point. Uh, Jesus really died for our sins. The price has been paid. You know, come and look at the Savior. He died for our sins. We don't have to. There's no condemnation. Because Christ took it all. The wages of sin is death. He paid the wages. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He shed His blood. He died for us. So this is a beautiful, beautiful truth. And, and the second part of, of this is the, um, the whole rock theme. It, it really strikes me as you read it. It says, and Joseph, this is 46, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Cut out of the rock. Other, other, it's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and others make it clear. This is brand new, never been used. See, in the culture, that was really significant because they, everybody reused tombs. You put somebody in the tomb, you leave them a year, and then you go and uh, get the, basically bones are left, and they put a bones in an ossuary, a box, uh, usually hewn out of a, of a stone tube itself, but it's, you know, like this big where the human bones would go, and then they'd put that on the shelf and reuse the tomb over and over and over and over again. Again, Joseph of Arimathea is no longer in Arimathea. He's a wealthy, influential man in Jerusalem, and he has his special place of high honor. He's going to be buried there. He's going to have the you know, biggest monument in the cemetery, as it were. And he takes that and gives it to Jesus. And this, that whole idea of the rock. First of all, of course, we believe this is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 53. You know, what doesn't come out of Isaiah 53? It's like the best passage in the whole Bible. It's awesome, man. It's so beautiful. And this is uh, Isaiah 53, 9. And, and they, they made his grave with the wicked. So he, he dies with the wicked. And see, what would if they took him down, there was, the Jews would compel the Romans in Jerusalem to take down the bodies before the Sabbath. Out in other parts of the Roman Empire, they would leave them up there for weeks. Uh, but the Jews had some sensibilities. They uh, would force the Romans to take down the bodies, and then most of them would just be thrown into a mass grave. Uh, the potter's field, it was called. And that's what would have happened to Jesus if Joseph had not stepped in. And so instead of being uh, thrown into the mass grave, he has, he's in a rich man in his death. This is a prophecy fulfilled this is incredible wealth. Even people in Brooklyn today wish they could be buried here. It's the epic epicenter, that center of Jewish desire to be buried is here. And this guy has a brand new, hewn 
tomb and it goes a high honor to Jesus, our Savior. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I, summing it up, again, Joseph had come a long way in his life to have this. He's no longer in Arimathea. He's a man of Jerusalem. And also, by the way, he's a man of influence and power. And he probably is not a stranger to Pilate. He could very well have been a friend of the court. So he, again, a little tiny bit of speculation here, but he has an entry to get into Pilate. You don't just saunter into Pilate and make requests, but you do if you're Joseph of Arimathea. He had access. He used his power and influence for the glory of God. This was a new tomb, a great honor, like I already said. But this is kind of what struck me, and I can't say for sure, but I, I just like the, the words. This tomb had been cut out of the rock. Because who is the rock? The Bible says. Jesus is the rock. He is the rock. So, Jesus the rock. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the cornerstone. Jesus the rock in the rock is, steeled, is sealed in there by a large stone. It's again, I, again, I can't say that it's Holy Spirit inspired, but it sort of struck me. He's cut, out, this thing is cut out of the rock. Jesus is placed in there. And he, Joseph, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Um, you see pictures of these rolling stones. It's probably what it was, like a big round thing that was on a, in a trough, like a gutter. It would roll down. Uh, and seal the tomb. You want to seal it because uh, you don't want wild animals getting in there. Uh, you want your loved ones going to lay in there for a, a year. Uh, they knew what they were doing. They prepared it well. And, and so it's, I think it's this wonderful, weird irony, you know, another irony in the holy text of Scripture. Jesus, who is the rock, is inside the rock, sealed in there by a large stone. They, they, this is from 1 Corinthians. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Jesus is our, the rock of our salvation. He's the cornerstone. Um, look at 1 Peter 2.7. This reference is found, I think, 11 times in the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter. Anybody tell me, what's Peter's name? What's it mean? Rock. And that word Petros is, it was hewn out of the rock uh, in Joseph's payment. So 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8 says this. So start at verse 6. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone. So in, in the Jewish economy, in Zion, in, in Jerusalem, in the whole of uh, the Jewish nation of the sons of Abraham, I am laying, God the Father is laying a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. This is Jesus, worthy of high honor, the highest honor we could give him. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How, how do you relieve shame? By faith in Jesus. Remember, uh, I talked about the crucifixion. It was so humiliating and so shameful. He was put to ridicule and shamed and spit upon and beaten. And he takes our shame for us because sin is shameful. We, we belittle this in our society. We say, it's, oh, it's not so bad, um, or, or it's fine, you know. It's actually good. We're glad you're sinning. Uh, well, we don't call it sin. You ever have that kind of person? I've had that happen a couple times in my life where somebody will say uh, they're living with uh, somebody, a woman, and they'll say, well, ha-ha, we're living in sin. Uh, and they think, no, it's a little, fine and a little thing. Well, no, we, we are all living in sin to some extent, and there's shame involved with that. And the only way to relieve the shame is to believe in Him. Believe that He's taken all the shame away. He's taken all the condemnation, but all the shame too. We can be unashamed because of the forgiveness that Jesus provides. It's a struggle because Satan keeps coming back and tries to shame you. And over and over and over and over again. And we need to keep thinking, Jesus is dead. He died. He rose again. There is no shame. This cornerstone, uh, verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. That's our honor. We believe in Jesus. We point to Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the way I'm avoiding condemnation. He's the way I'm avoiding shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Which is to say, Jesus is there as the cornerstone, but if you do not believe in him and you tr don't trust in him, then he will actually be your tripping point. And you'll fall over to your destruction. A rock of offense. Verse uh, 8 continues, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They disobeyed. They chose not to trust in Christ. We come to our text, and we have one Jewish leader doing the bold thing, assisted by Nicodemus as well. He's a minority. And they disobeyed, but they're also destined to that. There's a sovereignty of God always in, in the background. And, and see you see that continuing. But you are a chosen race. Now why do I believe? God chose you. Not because of your goodness. You didn't drum it up. You, oh, you made a wise choice there. Uh, no, it's because of God's choice. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are 
God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a reference to the prophet Hosea. Lo, lo ami, not my people, and lo ruhama, have not received mercy. But that's our natural condition. We're not the people of God. And we are not received mercy until God sovereignly calls us to himself in this great cornerstone. So Jesus is the rock. All right. Now that's the center of the text. So let's close by pulling in the, the two, two ends. Uh, let's talk about Joseph. We already said he was from, from Arimathea, a highly respected man. He was looking. Look, look at the text. It says he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. That's used a few times in Scripture. It means that he had an expectation that God was going to keep his promises. And hopefully, maybe Jesus was really the Messiah. And it seemed like maybe that was really the case, that we don't know all the details. He doesn't know all the details, but he believes and he's hoping. He's looking for salvation. And uh, it's, I think it's John says that he was actually a secret disciple of Jesus. You go to the, the count, and it also says he didn't agree with their ruling on Jesus. He wasn't a part of that decision. So God has people in places that are surprising, you know? You would never think that in the council there was Joseph of Arimathea. So look, look at the text. Look at this text here. It says, In verse 43, Joseph of Marathia, I've already read that part. He himself was looking for the kingdom of God. Look at the next two words. He took courage. He took courage. He grabbed it. This is what he took. You, you, think about this. He's risking a lot. He's a wealthy man. He's, he's Jewish. He's in the Sanhedrin. They've just condemned Jesus. None of them care. They would love it if Jesus was thrown into the grave with all those uh, malefactors and evil men. Throw him in there! We don't care. Let him rot. Let the birds eat him. Our, we're holy. We're going go, to go worship God on the Sabbath. You know That's what they were all saying. But he said, we've got to treat Jesus with honor. We're going to put him in a place that's worthy of him. He took courage. What are some other options, right? He could have been like Peter. What did Peter take? Panic? Fear? I'm hiding. Where are the disciples? They're, they're hiding. They ran off. What are some other options that he could have taken? Well, let's leave that for somebody else. Let somebody else. Have. I don't think he overthought this thing. You know, we overthink things. We overthink obedience. <laughs> it's too risky to obey. But he's willing to face the danger. He's willing to speak up for Jesus. He's willing to be identified with Jesus, no matter how risky it could have been. And the real risk is from his own culture. I don't think the Romans really would have cared. His own Jewish culture, he's risking all of his status in life 
But as I said earlier, he took courage and he's uniquely able to do this job. He's wealthy, probably has access to Pilate, and he, he has a place, and the place is actually pretty close. And he has the financial means to buy all the preparations. God prepared him to do this most important job. He's born in some little nowhere town. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. God enriches him in life. And at this opportunity, he obeys and does this wonderful thing. So here's the issue. What has God called you and I to do? When is God calling us to take courage? Be a minority. Be that one person who stands up for Jesus and his truth. That's what this text is saying. Jesus really is the rock. He's the real savior. And he's worthy of our loyalty. Even in difficult times. And then of course the, the other parens on the text is Mary Magdalene, verse 47, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Lists two Marys. There's a lot of Marys floating around here. <laughs> Very popular name, Mariam, Mariam. This is not the mother of Jesus. This is two different Marys. You know what's cool about Mary Magdalene? She's mentioned more than almost all the other disciples. Yeah, like Bartholomew. You never hear about Bartholomew, Bart. Uh, you don't. Uh, but you hear about Mary Magdalene, I think it's like a dozen times, something like that. Um, she, was a, she was a follower of Jesus. She was a wealthy woman, again. She helped supply his needs. You think, how'd that traveling band of guys eat all the time? They're hungry. They're eating a lot. People like Mary Magdalene, would, was, they were funding. They were following and funding and helping uh, Jesus. I didn't get to hear your sermon, but the end of your sermon last week was this text, right? 40, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene. This is for the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. That's a, those are the same two Marys. And Salome, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there's a band of women uh, there helping out, and these women are faithful. Here's a, a pretty interesting piece of art, uh, Antonio Cesare, 1883. Maybe he has too many people here, but uh, Joseph and, and Nicodemus and a couple of Marys faithfully hoisting Jesus' body, and they, they saw where he was laid. They, the text says, they saw where he was laid. Of all the disciples, nobody was there. A couple of women were willing to be in the minority, willing to be the oddballs out, willing to risk their own lives to stand up for Jesus and watch lovingly, carefully. From two generations ago, a, a pastor named Albert Barnes in his book called Notes on the New Testament said this, the affection of these pious females never forsook them in all the trials and sufferings of their Lord. With true love they followed him to the cross. They came as near to him as they were permitted to come 
in his last moments. They followed him when taken down and laid in the tomb. The strong, the mighty, the youthful had fled. But female love never forsook him, even in his deepest humiliation. This is the nature of true love. It is strongest in such scenes, while professed attachment will abound in prosperity and live most in sunshine. It is only genuine love that will go into the dark shades of adversity and flourish there in scenes of poverty, want, affliction, and death. It shows its genuineness. That which lives there is genuine. That which turns away from such scenes is spurious. Albert Barnes. So the text, I think, closes here with this. Do you love Jesus? Are you willing to be a memorial, to stand on the rock who is put into a rock sealed with a large stone? who would come to life for our salvation. Dare to be a minority. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Strengthen us with this great example. We may be from Arimathea, a place that in 2,000 years people might say, well, that's a myth. It doesn't exist. <laughs> but, oh, Lord, we pray that as you have enriched us, as you have strengthened us in whatever way, Maybe it's singing a song on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's supporting, giving. Uh, whatever it is you have strengthened us to do, you've put us in this critical position to do a job for you like Joseph of Arimathea and the two Marys in our text. They were willing to take the risk, willing to stand on the rock. Help us to love you with genuine love. Amen.